Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, clickers, whizzers, and beepers. And for that matter, hello, click, beep, whizzers. And congratulations for landing upon yet another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Not to be confused with TikTok with Matthew Dickerson, which is a whole other thing. And here he is, fresh from recording another TikTok. It's the man himself. It's Matthew Dickerson. How have you been, Matt? Yeah, very good this week, actually. And I had a fascinating experience this week where I went to look at a diprotodon skeleton. So most people may not be familiar with diprotodon, but it's the largest marsupial we've ever found. Big that existed. megafauna. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that existed on this earth. And obviously they're not around anymore. They were back around, I think, the Pleistocene era. About 30,000 to 40,000 years ago? Well, I think the, the Pleistocene goes from about two and a half million up to, say, around that thirty yeah. to 40,000 years ago time frame. So somewhere in there, they were existing until about that, as you say, 30 to 40,000 years ago. So not a lot of fossils exist, but the skeleton that I looked at looked fascinating, looked just like a real skeleton, very detailed, very intricate. But then when you read the information about it, it was all 3D printed. There just simply aren't enough skeleton pieces to make up a full skeleton. And I imagine they'd be very rare, very expensive, and want to be contained within a very sterile environment. So they did some scans of some of the components of the actual fossils that they'd found, some of the skeleton pieces they'd found. From that, then they built out a full skeleton in a 3D printed model. Mm. And it just it looks fascinating when you look very at cool. it. Yeah, it is. And when you look at it, that's where you see the sort of technology that we've got in 3D printing. A lot of people think of 3D printing as either printing modern things or printing little one-off devices. It might be for a jet engine, for example, or for a, a Formula One car when you just need one or two of those things where you just need to be able to print high tech. Most people don't think of it, and I must admit I didn't either, about printing old stuff like mm. a skeleton from a diprotodon. I've got to get it right. Uh, so when you start to think about that sort of thing, it starts to open up the possibility of how we can expose science, expose a whole range of things to a whole larger group of people without having to have the original skeleton. So I, th- I thought that was pretty cool. Well, the text there just requires the creativity and imagination to be able to apply it, doesn't it? Well, that's right. And also, we've got some of the data there. With Diprotodon, I think they were there was a lot of discussion about the feet because they didn't find a lot of good fossils of the feet mm. of Diprotodon. Were they hooves? Were they feet? What sort of feet were they? And again, with a 3D printed model, You've got one interpretation of it. There might be mm. some debate and argument about that. But other parts, for example, the lower jawbone, where I was was at Wellington, which is in central west New South Wales, and the jawbone was the first fossil or the first piece of any skeleton that was found there. Back in about 1838, that was found. And so that was the first large or first megafauna, first large marsupial that had ever been found in terms of a skeleton. And then obviously they found more pieces from there and then built the whole skeleton out in Mm. 3D. So yeah, it is fascinating to see that. And again, when you looked at it, you just assume, well, that's the skeleton. That's there. Wow, they found all the pieces of a skeleton. Well done. But they didn't find all the pieces of skeleton, but they'd be able to create the whole skeleton. Yeah, very cool. Unlocking uh, some of the secrets of our nation's prehistory. Yeah, that's right. And and worldwide history, let's face it. And then get people interested, get kids going in there interested in that and looking at that and going, wow, that looks pretty big and scary. I'm glad they don't exist anymore around here. (laughs) 
<laughs> the marsupials we have don't seem to be as deadly. I mean, I, I don't want to get in a fight with the kangaroo. Well, there was the thylacoleo, the, the marsupial lion. That was uh, a predator. Mm. But, uh, yeah, these big megafauna, they didn't have a lot of other predators around the place. So No, no, and I wouldn't have liked us to have been one of their little bits of food. Although I think the diprotodon was, was only herbivorous. A, a herbivorous. Yeah, much more yeah. herbivorous. So, yeah. yeah, but I, yeah. I think the lion. I think Yeah, the yeah, lion. And, and, the, and the tiger as well, but that was only a small one. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Uh, still... Small can still be quite deadly, so I'd rather them not be around anymore. Because we seem to have, in terms of big animals, we've got lots of small animals like snakes and spiders, but in big animals, we don't seem to have them in Australia. Yeah, we're famous for our things that can bite you. Hmm, That's right. Well, we've got a jam-packed podcast for you today, folks. If you're in the market for a new ear, yes, you heard that right. If you're in the market for a new ear... Gee, the puns are starting early, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) We've got some good news for you. We'll explain that later. Also, we have a 360-degree view pet camera that's on the market now, so you can live stream your puppy destroying your backyard while you're at work and could do nothing about it. And there's some more distracting news from the US about creative and ineffective non-solutions to gun violence. But our first story for the day is all about data sharing. Targeted advertising is big business, and your search history is an important commodity to marketers. We've talked about that before. Google and Facebook make a ton of cash from the sale of your browsing history, whether you like it or not, and whether you're aware of it or not. So, a clever little tech company out of Canada wants a piece of the action, and unashamedly, they'll sell your data, and you'll know it because they'll then share the spoils with you. Matt, is this right? There's a new search engine that wants to challenge Google, and they're willing to buy people over. Well, they're willing to pay you to surf the internet. I can hear my kids getting very excited about that, just sitting there. Just sit there and surf the net. Browse the web and get paid for it. But you're spot on. The data that we give to these big tech companies is incredible, and we don't really think about it that much. We sit there, we browse Mm. the web, we surf, we go and look for certain things, and then we've talked about it before. Suddenly you see all the ads popping up for the thing that you searched on just last week. How did that happen? Well, data sharing was how that happened. The average European person has his or her internet usage shared approximately 376 times a day. <laughs> so if you think... I that, figured it might have been one or two. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many companies out there looking at that data. In the US, it's about 747 times a day. So that is an incredible amount of data. So exactly right. And even people who think, oh yeah, I don't really search up very interesting things. No, that's still big money in that. There is big money in that because if you're a certain demographic and you don't do much surfing, it's still valuable data because yeah. they then sell that data to advertisers and say, if you want to target yellow widgets and sell them to people, we've got just the data set for you. Here's where you should put those ads and oh, we'll charge you to put those ads there. Yeah. So it is big, big business, big data. But Surf, and that's the name of the company, S-U-R-F, Surf, yeah, very creative, have come up with this concept where they say, come and use our browser. And exactly as you said, we're telling you, we're going to share the data. In fact, we're going to sell that data and we make money out of that. But just to get you on the hook, we're going to pay you. Now, they don't pay you cold, hard cash. They pay you in points and they haven't actually revealed exactly how much surfing and how many points you need to get various things. But in their trial so far, they said people have earned enough to collect in collectively, not individually, about $1.2 million worth of prizes. Now, that sounds good. That sounds like a yeah. big number. But how many people have generated that? I can't tell you that. So yeah, right. it might be about 2.4 million people. So they might <laughs> got 50 cents each. Who knows? But the idea is a bit like a frequent flyer card or any of the um, cards that you might have with various airlines, those points accumulation. 
I imagine it's going to take a lot of surfing to get enough points to get some small reward. But that's probably better than you get with anything else, that which you get better nothing. Better than you get with Google. That's yeah? exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an interesting concept. It's really taking what we all know to be happening and say, how can we benefit consumers from this? So I really like the different approach. I like mm. when I see companies that kind of take the approach that I would describe as swim upstream. Everyone else is doing one thing, so how can we do something that's the opposite of that and still make a viable business? And presumably this is a viable business and the little amounts they'll pay to you and I uh, probably uh, drop in the ocean for what that data is worth. Well, I wonder what it's going to take for uh, Google to get toppled as the top search engine. Well, a lot, because when you've got market share that Google's got, they've got over 90% market yeah. share. It's pretty close and to a monopoly. that's the world as well. That's so, the world. Yeah. That's yeah. right, yes. And maybe exclude China from that, because sometimes China okay. gets a bit precious about what they do with countries or companies that are outside the Chinese borders. So two-thirds of the world. That's right. <laughs> but it is interesting. And then does Google just get to the stage where they say, yep, sure, we'll do that as well. I don't know they would think that have to at this stage. If surf starts getting a bit of market traction, who knows, Google might have to respond. Mm, very interesting. And again, watch this space, folks. Farming and technology have been bosom buddies for a long time. Protecting the yield from pests can be a costly and frustrating enterprise, particularly when the pests come in vast crop-eating flocks and have learned how to treat your scarecrow with abject contempt. That bag of straw with a hat ain't fooling anyone. But there is hope appearing on the horizon, swooping into the picture in the form of a robotic peregrine falcon to target flocks of crop-thieving birds and scare them off in a non-lethal, sustainable self-regulating sort of way. Matt, this should become a sport. <laughs> it does sound like fun, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Send your falcon and get rid of the birds. I can just see guys with leather bound, yeah, these leather gloves and uh, that's right, <laughs> calling with their, their with robotic <laughs> peregrine falcon. That's in. Right. <laughs> well, I actually love the images you see when you see a scarecrow near a field or a crop and you see birds, birds sitting on the scarecrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that contempt yeah, you nice mentioned, try. absolutely right. <laughs> no, we've worked out this thing ain't moving that much. So it's it is a, the crows. That's right. So this is an interesting concept. And you might think, well, just send in a normal drone. It'll fly around the birds and it'll scare them off. So the researchers here have been quite clever in that they've done exactly that. They've taken a standard drone and they've tested that on 56 separate flocks to see how many of those flocks of birds move away because a drone comes along and how long they stay away for. Then they've taken a falcon-like robotic bird, drone, call it what you will, but it looks like a falcon, mm -hmm. And they send that in, and then they do the same testing to see how many birds go from that perspective and how long they stay away for. And so the results they found was that absolutely the falcon lookalike is much more effective than a standard drone in getting rid of flocks and then keeping them away for longer. And obviously those birds, when they see a bird of prey, they go, oh, that looks a bit scary. Oh, and this one moves. Oh, it must be a real one. Yeah. I'll get the heck out of here. And they stay away because sometimes, and I've seen solutions like that, people do bring in a real bird of prey or birds of prey and they send them in. And so it's a fairly expensive, time-consuming process for you to get a bird handler with the proper leather arm <laughs> and go in there and send them in and then let them attack the birds. People use guns still, of course, and try and shoot yeah. the birds, but not really great from an environment. Well, I've even yeah, I've been aware of like just uh, you, you've, you've got these guns that just automatically fire a shot sort of at random. All oh, right, through I've the seen day, those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just a gunshot at random um, to just scare the birds away. But you know, even birds. Yeah, you know, I'm aware that birds have just gotten used to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they do, if they do see there's nothing happening from it, I think that's where 
they will say, well, I don't need to worry about that anymore. But if they see something that looks like a falcon and it yeah. scares them away, and then somewhere else they see an actual falcon come and attack some of them, they'll go, oh, I know that thing there. I'll stay away from that thing because I've seen it attack my brother Jimmy. And mm. so it's a, it's a well, bit of a from a personal perspective, if I go to the movies and see a cardboard cutout of a Terminator 3000, then I'm not really worried about it. But if mm. a real Terminator 3000 shows up with a gun and wants to shoot <laughs> me in, then I'm out of there. That's right. Call it a robot, call it a person. Who cares? I'm out of there. It's still going to be out of there. That's right. So at the moment, the prototypes have only got a battery life of about 15 minutes, but that's okay because it can send these in, come back, land, charge up again. They're still only operated by human operators, but I don't think it's too far away, we'll see some type of AI introduced and some type of autonomous process where I think it'll land, it'll charge up, and it'll go out at random time, so not Mm. on the hour every hour because the birds wake up to that like they do with a scarecrow. It'll be a random time frame between sixty minutes and ninety minutes, for example. Just but, take but off surely, and fly you know, around. But surely, with the right camera technology, yeah, uh, you could be able to spot birds. A camera could detect birds. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and send out the peregrine falcon um, um, as needed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So early days, but I love the ingenuity of humans yeah. where they say we've got to stop those birds eating our crops. And there are these other methods, but here's a new method: send in something that looks like a bird of prey, and then they're going to be a bit scared. Yeah, very cool. Social media outlets like Facebook and Twitter, et al., they've been on the back foot for some time now for providing a haven for keyboard warriors and trolls who throw their digital grenades and slander and misinformation and what have you, hiding safely behind the protected anonymity afforded to them by the likes of Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey or whoever else is the front man of Twitter these days. It's a contentious issue because digital anonymity is a draw card for social media outlets. Enter a federal court judge who has now ordered the release of personal information of one Twitter user who they've deemed too too loose for the social media. Matt, is this a can of worms that you're holding in your hand right now? Too loose for social media? Gee, that's pretty low sort of bar. That is a low bar, isn't it? But if you're... Yeah, this. Now, look, I think this someone's is, shooting from the hip, all of a sudden been called out for shooting, and that's what the internet's renowned for. Exactly right. So, someone's saying, "Hold on, this is what I thought I was meant to do." But yeah. there's a whole lot more behind this. And let me go back a couple of steps. You know, when you see a busker on the side of the road, and you walk up and you see the hat out there, he's playing his saxophone or whatever, and you see a few coins in there. Most buskers that I know, I don't know a lot of them, but most buskers I know will always seed their hat before they yeah, start. Yeah. So they'll put a bit of money in there and see a few coins. So someone walks past, they'll say, oh, other people have given James some money. I better put some money in as well. So it's a psychological principle known as social proof. You are, and in very loose terms, you determine what is correct by finding out what other people think is correct. Sounds a bit sad, really. Yeah, it sounds yeah, like yeah. you can't think for yourself. Well, yeah, humans are followers like sheep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's the concept with a lot of things that have happened with social media. People create fake accounts, then they go out there and they try and influence public opinion. So they'll go out for a particular product and they'll do reviews and there'll be 30 different people who put reviews up. That product was only posted yesterday and it only was on the market yesterday and suddenly there's 30 reviews there. Mm. Wow, I better get on with this. It looks so popular. Of course, those 30 reviews might have all been done by the same company. In Mm. fact, the same person or the same bot might have done all those. So comments, reviews, all those sorts of things. One of the complaints for a long time has been well, maybe social media companies shouldn't make it so easy to create a fake account and go and put up fake reviews, etc. Now, fake reviews for a product, 
I suppose buyer beware, you should be a little bit conscious of that. Although the ACCC in Australia has actually been taking some action against companies who put up fake testimonials and fake reviews and actually fining some of those companies. Oh, so, wow. yeah, right, so okay. that's, that's interesting. But it, this is the problem. A survey, and this is from some marketing companies who obviously are trying to get out there and help you with your product placements, but one survey found that 93% of online shoppers said they were influenced by what they read on social media about those particular products, and 90% said they trust peer recommendations over traditional advertising. Now, when they say peer, Mm. they mean anyone on social media. So any random, I don't know who they are, but they said it on social media, so I trust that more than advertising. (laughs) So you can see why companies are keen to do this. So they've been able to hide, they've been able to create all sorts of fake accounts, that's all fine. But then along came PR Guy. So his actual Twitter handle is PR Guy 17 now, the problem with Power Guy 17 is he hasn't been doing product reviews. He's been involving himself in political commentary. Something around COVID, lockdown messages, pro-lockdown messages in Victoria, for example. Mm-hmm. And so he started actually attacking one journalist. And that journalist said, well, I don't really like what he's saying. I don't think it's true. So I want to sue him, which is kind of what people do these days. If, yeah, it, yeah. if I don't like what you say, I don't say, James, please stop it. I just go and sue you. That seems to be the, the standard reaction for Apparently, people. Apparently, uh, per capita, we're one of the most litigious societies in the world. Oh, I think we're chasing America down on that, and we might even beat America yeah, in some fronts of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a bit sad. But in this case, of course, how do you sue PR Guy 17? Who's PR Guy 17? So he's made application to the High Court to say, I want you, the High Court, to tell Twitter to reveal who PR Guy 17 is, then I can sue him. So the High Court has agreed with that and said to Twitter, you need to reveal who PR Guy 17 is. I want to know their name. I want to know their email address because we want to be able to sue someone or, or one particular person wants to sue the person behind that. Now, at this There's stage... can of worms. That's right. Wow. At this stage, Twitter have not responded, but they've only got a certain time frame to respond. They might respond with a middle finger. They might respond with some data, but... I think the risk there is that people, when they create their accounts, might think that it's okay because I've got an anonymous account. Mm. It might be someone creating 50 accounts, but it might be just someone creating one account saying, I want to be anonymous. I don't want everyone to know my thoughts and my commentary on this. So once that one name is revealed, if that's in fact what happens, then to me, that's a bit of a landmark case. Mm. There'll be a whole bunch of other people out there who'll say, right, Billy Blog 17, I want to go and find out who he is. So there'll be all these applications going to social media companies. And that's just Australia. And as we saw with the Google and Facebook paying for news, that really started off, Australia was one of the early ones across the world who forced the hand of those companies to pay for news. Yeah, that was big news in itself, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. And this is the same. I see this having ramifications around the world where other people will say, hold on, if they've got to start showing who they are, then I want to go and find out who this guy is because he's always said something nasty and mean about me. Yeah. I want to find out what's going on there. Oh, and goodness. Yeah, so what may well happen, and this is the whole issue with Twitter at the moment with Elon Musk saying, I don't really want to buy Twitter for $61 billion or thereabouts unless you tell me about some of these accounts and whether they're fake accounts, whether your numbers are real. And this is where it'll finally get to, I think, where social media companies will have to say, I need you to prove that you're James Eddy before I give you an account. Now, how do you do that? Do you upload your passport? Do you upload your ID? Then suddenly you've got a social media company with a whole bunch of ID, which is just perfect (laughs) for someone that steals that data and then does some identity theft. So that's a can of worms as well. So it's a tricky one, but I actually hope, my personal opinion is I hope this person is revealed. I hope it does get to the point where 
out on social media, you just have to have your real name. I just mm. think that makes for a little bit more reasonable and more sensible and maybe nicer discourse in general because at the moment – you can be anyone and put a whole bunch of rubbish up there and no one knows who you are, but people still listen to it. Well, yeah, responsibility is something that is just so easily swept under the carpet for so many people. If I don't like something you've said or you're doing, I can walk up to you in the street and I can say, James, I don't like this. But you know who I am. You can see me. It's pretty hard for me to hide. If I walk up and put a, a paper bag over my head and, and dress all in black so you don't recognise who I am and go up and start saying things to you with a fake voice on, then people would say, well, I'm not going to listen to that person because it's person trying to be anonymous, they don't want to know who or reveal who they are, you take a lot less notice of it, but also I don't think people would do it. But mm. online, in the online world, it happens all the time. Yeah, shoot from the hip. This next story is for me. Matt, sign me up for two of these, please. Pet cams have been around for a little while now, tracking recalcitrant pooches' daily goings-on. But this new model gives you a full 360-degree view. For a while, Matt, we were on first-name terms with the good people at the local pound, and I could not for the life of me work out how my Jack Russell pug was getting out of our yard. A camera like this might have saved me a few quid and a little heartache from having to build medieval battlements complete with a croc-infested moat around the house. Tell us about this much simpler option, Matt. Well, it does seem like somewhat of a first-world problem, but people were complaining about their pet cams, and we've talked about these before, devices that have got a feeder in there, a pet cam, you can mm. talk to your dog, you can be at work and pull out your smartphone while no one's watching and start to have a little chat with your nice dog or cat at home. But the problem was those wide-angle cameras only covered maybe 120, 140 degrees. They didn't cover a full 360-degree view. So sometimes your darling pet or dog would be out of view. So yeah. what could be more distressing for someone at work and not being able to see their dog from their phone? Yeah. So Furbo's come out with a 360-degree camera. So it's not a bunch of cameras around there. The top actually rotate. So the base sits there. You can still feed the dog. You can still make noises, get the dog to come over, record the data, all the rest of the things you can think of. In fact, everything you can think of and a few things you can't, in addition to being able to turn the top around. So you can go looking for your dog or cat around the home. But it gets better than that because it can actually listen out for noises and then respond to a noise in your home somewhere, i.e. a dog scratching, making a noise, barking, whatever. And so the camera can automatically point and face there or it can use the motion sensors in the device as well yeah, wow. to make sure that the camera is always trained at where the dog is, where the motion is, the last time the dog was seen to move. So that means anytime you pick up your phone, have a look at where your dog or cat is sitting, then you can see the animal there because it's already pointing there based on motion or sound sensors. So what you're saying to me is that the problems that I've been experiencing aren't unique to me and there's a real market for this. this is apparently, apparently, I didn't know there was, but no, <laughs> your problems, you are not alone, James. It's okay, you can right, share yeah. with the world. And it's obviously such a big issue that Furbell said, we've got to go and make a device that's going to cover all those James Eddies of the world out yeah, there. Yeah, I reckon that's a great idea. <laughs> Classic car lovers, more of your favourite car models are getting an EV makeover. This time it's the love bug's turn. The VW Beetle is going all electric. 
Matt, do you think they'll attach an artificial sound to it, or will I just have to roll the window down and make the dugga 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 noise out the top of my voice out the window? <laughs> well, I was going to say I, I remember a friend at uni who had a V Dub, the V Dub station wagon, which I don't, I didn't even know existed. No, no, I have one of those. Did you really? Yeah, 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 right. Okay, yeah, well, because I always just thought it was the Beetle. I went to uni and there was this guy with a V Dub station wagon. I went, what is that thing? But we used to just call it the Duck Duck Mobile because that's yeah. the kind of the noise it makes. So your noise, your impersonation there was very accurate. So this is not like the DeLorean story from last week where they've taken a DeLorean shape and said, let's make it a modern EV car. This is taking the old classic VW Beetle or, for that matter, some old Porsches, and it's taking the petrol engine out and putting in the electric motor. Mm. And it's a big business. This is happening more and more now. This particular company in particular, called Zelectric, actually focuses on rear-engined, air-cooled vehicles, which narrows it down pretty much <laughs> to V-Dub and Porsche. So, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> so they take the rear engine out, they take, well, the air cooling's obviously already there as part of it, and they put an electric motor well, in there. It was only a Meccano set in the um, VWs anyway, wasn't it? It looked like that way, didn't it? Yeah. Interesting enough, what they found is that the Porsches they've been doing very effective because Porsches were made to go fast. You put an electric motor in there, your fast Porsche becomes a faster Porsche, mm. and it can handle the steering, the handling, the braking. It's all designed to work with a fast car. They've actually found that... Whereas the VW <laughs> Beetle becomes airborne. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit scary, isn't it? So the, the electric motors they're putting in the V-dubs are somewhat lower spec than the electric motors they're putting in the Porsches because you just haven't got the rest of the car to handle the extreme acceleration and extreme speed yeah, right. that you can be provided with an electric motor. But what's great is that there are some people who love their old classic cars, and that's great. Yeah. But then they find that they're not that reliable, they're using lots of petrol, they're not conforming to all the modern standards that we have for our pollution our devices. So there are all those things going against having that beautiful old classic car that you like to drive around. But put an electric motor in there, mm. wow, it's a whole new lease of life. Now, before you get too excited, you want to go and buy one from a wrecking lot and throw this in there, then you might be paying for a Porsche, for example, you might be paying $70,000 yeah, to wow. electrify your old Porsche. Part of that is the motor, a lot of that is the battery, obviously. And what that particular company that I mentioned before is doing is they're really focusing on giving you a good experience with that. So you don't just have a little basic electric motor and a just a small 10 kilowatt hour battery or something and then get a little bit of range and you can drive around the block. They're saying, no, we want these cars to be used, we want these cars to be practical in terms of the conversion. So they're putting decent sized batteries and as I mentioned, good motors in them as well. And it's a niche market as well. This is not your average Joe just picking up a, an old Beetle and... No, no, you're right. But they're, they're booked up. out. If you had your Porsche or V-Dub sitting at home at the moment and you wanted to electrify it, you're going to wait six months before they're going to start the job for you. So yeah, there's okay. a fair time oh, frame. Again, good. I think they'll ramp up their production. But the good part is there's lots of other companies out there that are looking at doing something similar. And so there are companies that are doing it to old cars, old Fords, old Holden, a whole range of old ones. In fact, I had someone talk to me the other day about a Cadillac. Now, the great thing about converting an old Cadillac is that they're heavy vehicles anyway. Mm -hmm. So by proportion, when you pull out the petrol motor and pull out the petrol tank and then put in electric motor, what you really want to do is put enough battery in there to give you decent range. Because they're such a big, heavy car anyway, putting a large-ish battery in there is quite acceptable because the car is built to take some weight. The trickier ones to convert are ones that are designed to be very lightweight cars and the battery doesn't weigh much. 
taking that out and putting a battery in there, you've, you're struggling. You don't have to upgrade the suspension as well, so yeah, you're struggling right. to put that in there and fit that in there. But some of those old cars, old Holden Commodores, Kingswoods, that type of thing, old, as I said, Cadillacs, those heavy cars, they're actually quite suited to converting over to electric because they can handle that extra weight. Well, I wonder what's going to happen with the little Mini Miner. Are those <laughs> whether they get a bit of a super? Yeah, yeah that's interesting because the Mini, the, the Mini, as in the Mini Cooper, they I can't do imagine make, they need a whole lot of power to get them to. Um, no, well, they're actually quite lightweight. But the Mini Cooper, that's an electric version. Yeah. They actually make a plug-in electric hybrid version of that. Yeah. So there's a couple of those Minis. But in I mean, I'm ones. thinking of, about converting the old models yeah. from the '60s, the ones in the Italian job, for example. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and, and souping those up to an electric model. Yeah. No, well, I, I'm not sure they'd be great just because they are fairly lightweight and yeah. just the room to fit some batteries in around that There's might nothing. be interesting. But I, I actually saw a funny episode of 40 Towers the other day where <laughs> John Cleese, it was the duck episode, and John Felt Cleese... the hell out of it with a branch, That's yeah? right, yeah, that's the one. And and so he's trying to fit into some a mini minor. television you'll ever see. <laughs> that's yeah. right. But fitting John Cleese into a mini minor was actually quite funny. So yeah. maybe some people will go for a more modern version, but... Don't despair. Whatever old version you've got, whatever old classic car you've got, and I saw some old Buicks the other day at a show, and it was hilarious because they actually came with an oil can slot under the bonnet because one of the owners told me this was a 1908 Buick. One of the owners told me that you have to stop about every 100 miles or so. He talked in miles because the Speedo's all in miles, the Odometer's in miles, in American as well, but... When you stopped every 100 miles or so, you had to because you had to pull out the oil can and all the tappets are exposed. So there's no tappet cover. You just had your oil can there and you just squirted a bit of oil along the top of the tappets. <laughs> and in a modern car, when you've got a tappet cover in there, oil gets sprayed up in there to keep it all lubricated. But, of yeah. course, that all being exposed, there was no oil going there. And then the issue was wherever you did that, you put a bit of oil along all the tappets there and that ran down the engine and you'd always leave a bit of an oil stain wherever you oiled up your tappets. So imagine taking some of those old classics and dropping an electric motor in there. That'd yeah. be fantastic. Oh, very good. We've talked about this next story before. If you remember, folks, a short while back, the powers in the EU were frustrated with the enormous wastage that comes with having a variety of phone chargers on the market. So they've moved to go with a universal charger for all brands, and they've now set a date, Matt. Yeah, we have talked about this before. And of course, Apple was the only one sitting outside this whole process. But the European Union has provisionally agreed that all new portable electronic devices must by autumn 2024, and I hate how they use the term autumn because that means different things in different parts yeah. of the country. Like, <laughs> it's so stupid. So down here, Southern Hemisphere, that's yeah, spring, spring 2024. Yeah. But what a stupid idea for a dating it, mechanism that's different across the world. Yeah, but, uh, but, but that's only in the EU, isn't it? So autumn's autumn in Europe, though. Yeah, correct, that's right. But effectively, when you say that, and we hear it a lot, we'll have that new product launching, and Americans do it as well, yeah. in spring or autumn, whatever it's like. Yeah. Well, that's not a universal date. Just say the month. That makes so much more <laughs> sense. But I digress. I digress. So. Well, maybe they, they're relying on that ambiguity so that if it's not ready to go at that stage, they can always just say, <laughs> We well, meant autumn southern hemisphere, yeah. not autumn <laughs> northern hemisphere. That's right. So anyway, by autumn 2024 in Europe, USB Type-C charger will be the only charging port on any electronic device that you buy. So that's big news. Apple's chucked a big tantrum and they've well sitting in the corner, cranky <laughs> as all get up. With their lightning cables. They've <laughs> actually said nothing about this latest okay. decision because I think they said enough earlier. They've yeah. said that it stifles innovation by having everyone have to use the one port, which is intriguing because 
we have mentioned this before, that iPhones have lightning port. The basic iPad has a lightning port, but USB Type-C is on the iPad Pro and the iPad Air. So okay. they've already got products that are using the Type-C connector. They're ready for it. Well, they're obviously saying we're stifling innovation in these other products of ours. So don't buy with the iPad Pro because it's stifling innovation because that's what we're saying about <laughs> USB Type-C. So it does sound like somewhat mixed messaging from Apple, but it does make more sense. So essentially... The range of small and medium-sized portable electronics that will have to be covered by this will include mobile phones, tablets, headphones, headsets, handheld video game consoles, portable speakers, so a whole range of things, not computers on there. Now, they will move to that point with computers, but they realise there's a bit more complexity with computers, so they'll have another 40 months, which is an interesting time frame, isn't it? 40 months. Not 48, not 36, not 24, 40 months. That's right. We don't work in years. No, apparently not. Yeah, right. So they'll have an additional 40 months before their products can come out or have to come out with a Type-C charger on them. But all the rest of it makes sense. And I even know now my bike lights, for example, when I go riding and it's a bit dark at night, I've got bike lights and they've got USB Type-C. My tail light is USB Type-C. So many products are moving that way already because it just makes so much sense. Mm. Now, the EU has said that this will save, out of Europe only, this will save 11,000 tonnes of e-waste. Oh, wow. And it will save consumers per year. Yeah, yeah, sorry. And it will save consumers 250 million euro per year on unnecessary charger purchases. The hope from the EU is that when you then buy your various products and they don't have a charger because you don't need it because you've already got lots of those at home, then those products will be cheaper. And they might be dreaming on that. They mm. might just leave the prices the same. Yeah. But that's the idea is you don't have to keep buying these charging devices because you'll already have enough of them at home. So I think it's good news. It does make it easier for the consumer. The real question is, what will Apple do? Are they going to release an iPhone into Europe that's a different model iPhone to the rest of the world? Mm. Gee, that mm. seems like a lot of complication to add to your manufacturing process to dig your heels in and say, look at this iPhone with lightning port. It's so much better than that one with USB Type-C, but that's our product as well, so we don't want to say it's not very good. So let's hope that people in Europe don't read the stuff we advertise in America. Who knows? <laughs> well, <laughs> sounds like the death knell for the lightning cable anyway. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Which will hit the bottom line of Apple a bit because every other manufacturer out there that says, I'm going to build a product that uses the lightning port, Apple says, we're happy for you to do that and just pay us a little bit of commission on each product that you sell. Mm. So there's some small amount. We are talking about a trillion-dollar company, so surely they can absorb that somehow. I remember hearing about the idea in this next story some time ago, and it used to feature in my lessons about a fanciful and hopeful future. It was made for some really interesting sort of narrative. 3D printing of body parts using human cells is now a thing, as doctors have transplanted the first human ear using the recipient's own cells. Matt, this knocks the hell out of growing body bits on the back of a mouse. I don't know if you remember that one, but uh, yeah, that's been going for a couple of years or a couple of decades now. Yeah, no, I don't know that one. Tell me the story. Well, you used to get like a, a, a sort of bioplastic that they would uh, implant on the back of a mouse and uh, the skin of the mouse, would a naked mouse, would grow around that ear so that they could then cut that off and stitch it onto someone. Wow. Yeah. So with the cartilage intact. Very and gross. You can look it up, folks, on the on Google. Um, yeah, yeah, so the cartilage would be intact or the, the plastic that would be like yeah, the cartilage yeah, yeah. would so be intact. So it's all intact, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, and the and skin would be just to replicate what the human skin might look like. Bingo. Yeah, yeah wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then stay away from cats. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> they might have a nibble on your ear. <laughs> so it's interesting, though, and one of the things that's interesting about this is that the doctors involved with it have said it's actually pretty simple because the ear doesn't do much. The mm. ear sits there, it holds your glasses up, it lets you capture some sound, but this particular person, the first person who received this, is a 20-year-old woman who was born with one ear that was misshapen. So it basically was a couple of little bumps there where it should have been an ear. Mm. She continued on with her life as per normal. People probably stared at it a little bit. It probably wasn't that pretty to look at. But in general, she could still hear, maybe didn't capture as many sounds as possible. She maybe didn't need glasses by the time she was 20. So <laughs> sunglasses, I'm not sure what she did with those. But doctors said, right, let's take some of your own cells. Let's then, as you said, 3D print an ear based out of those same cells, and then stitch it on. Now, presumably, because it's her cells that were used, the body shouldn't reject it, and that's obviously an issue if you just took someone else's ear and stitched it on. Absolutely. So it's not going to reject the ear. It's going to heal up there, and obviously the doctors are clever enough, the plastic surgeons, to make the creases and the stitches all mould into one, and so then you've got an ear that looks pretty much like the other ear, and it's your body, and it sounds fantastic. Now, again, doctors have said, step one, an ear. Step 27,000 is an organ, yeah. a liver, a heart, something like that, because it's a bit more complicated rather than, as you say, a bit of basic plastic or cartilage sitting there as yeah, it might be with, with a mouse. Skin. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and in this case, it's just a, a body part that sits there not doing anything active to then go to an active body part, Muscles, few steps. nerve cells, mm. perhaps fat cells as well, yeah. All yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, But it's a pretty exciting first step. So these trials are continuing. They've got 11 patients in the first clinical trial they're doing with those that are having something like an ear grown and stitched on there or the change of the shape. So the good part is it gives hope for boxes all around the world, doesn't it? If they get your ear bitten off, you can get another one grown and sewn back on yeah, there. But also the, your noses as well. Yeah, there's yeah. enough nose injuries out there and, and whatnot. Uh, well, that's and, true too. And people that are born thing. without noses fully intact. So any of those body parts, which many of them are more appearance or more aesthetic than they are actual practical, but mm. it's still nice to be able to walk through society without having people stare at you, which would probably happen if you had some misshapen body parts well, here I and just there. think 3D printing with human cells now, or with any sort of cells, right, just um, just raises the bar. For, so well, is that the right um, term I'm thinking of? But, um, yeah, for, for what the possibilities could be in the future, in the not-too-distant future as well. Yeah. You say step 27,000. Well, I wonder how long it's going to take to get to that 27,000 step. It may be, you know, less than a decade. It could be very quick. And, in fact, even with 3D printing an ear, if someone had said 10 years ago, oh, I wonder we'll just 3D print an ear and stick it back on for someone's ear that's been damaged or doesn't exist there in the first place, and people would go, what are you talking about? 3D yeah. printing an ear, you're crazy. Go have a few mm. more drinks, will you? So... This has happened fairly quickly in terms of the whole scheme of things. So you're right, it may not be that far away and we'll be 3D printing other body parts. That just sounds incredible, doesn't it? Excuse me while I just pull out my soapbox and I just launch myself onto this. The incessant gun violence issue in the United States now commonly plagues news bulletins and serves as a crude reminder of how fortunate we are for the assertive actions of the Howard government back in 1996. We hear the NRA and its affiliates argue over distracting and irrelevant peripheral issues and propose their uninspiring non-solutions as the world numbs to the headlines of more and more and more active shooter incidents. One tech company, Axon, threw up a taser drone project to patrol schools as a possible protection device. Matt, how did that stroke of genius go? 
Yeah, not real good, actually. Ah, good. The ethics board for this company resigned in protest. Oh, wow. That's big. They they thought it was a terrible concept, a terrible idea, because, as you say, the solution that Australia had back, and I I wasn't actually sure what year, but so, 96, the government banned guns, I assume. I I, I grabbed that detail without proper research, I'll admit, but I'm sure it was around 90. And we've become accustomed to that now. When we talk about years ago, that that incident happened in Port Arthur, and then the government took some pretty decisive and swift action, we don't see incidents in Australia of mass shoot-ups in schools and Mm. shopping centres and at concerts. And so that's good from our perspective, but obviously there are solutions people are trying to come up with all over the world. The technology, and this is what I found fascinating, that you could have a drone that flies around and actually shoots a taser to obviously disable someone rather than take out someone permanently, have a gun on a taser, for example, which Mm. on a drone, sorry, which I'm sure you could do. The taser idea sounds interesting from a technology perspective. Obviously, as I said, the ethics board for this company said, we don't think this is such a great idea. But what they wanted to do, sounds good for sales, was they wanted to arm every school across America with a taser-mounted drone, at least one of them, maybe a couple. So the next time, not if, the next time uh, an active shooter incident occurs, then the drone is deployed and it goes out with its taser and finds the person with a gun and hits him with the taser and then the problem's solved after they've shot five or ten people, not 20 or 30 people. So what a great solution. So no, didn't end up being so great. The CEO finally came out and said, well, actually... We've thought about this a bit further and we're not going to go ahead with that project. But we could have and the technology was all there and it would have been a great product. But no, we, we've heard from our ethics board and we're saying that it's okay. We might look at some other solutions now. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, just uh, where the solution seems so plain and obvious, um, yeah, uh, the the grappling at uh, other non-solutions is just, yeah, it seems to be so sad and unfortunate. Anyway, look. I'm going to jump down off my soapbox now and and talk about some more happier news, folks. And this one comes with capital letters. Apple's WWDC 2022 has happened, people, and there are a ton of big announcements to come out of it. But first things first, Matt, what the hell is WWDC? The Worldwide Developer Conference. There we go. All right. Thank you very much. So Apple does two big things throughout the year. One is their WWDC, and they make some announcements about products that are coming up. And then they'll do typically their big launch about the new iPhones, which is obviously getting people excited about the new iPhones. And that's normally getting close to a September timeframe. So at this conference, I won't go through all the big announcements, but there's a few that stuck out to me. And people may have already read about some of these because it happened about a week or so ago. And there might have been some in the news, but a couple of ones that I absolutely loved. With the new iOS 16, and obviously this is a bit of a teaser to what will be released on the new iPhone, but obviously people with modern phones will be able to upgrade to that. They've gone ahead and done something that people said would be maybe good, maybe bad, maybe fantastic or horrible. Who knows? But we can kind of do it with emails, but you can't do it with text messages. And that's undo a text message. Send a text oh. and go, oops, oh, didn't mean to do that. I'll bring it back. Yeah, right. Okay. Or wow. just edit it. Oh, I didn't mean to say that word. Auto-corrected that word. Sorry, James. I'll just fix that word up and change it. Now, it can't make you unsee it. So if you saw that text message yeah. and then it changes, well, hold on. I remember what I said a minute ago. So you can't unsee it. Apple haven't gotten quite that good where they'll make, you know, they'll dive into your brain and undo something in there. But at least if the person hasn't read that text message, you can undo it. And sometimes people do that where 
they'll send the message and it's gone to their boss instead of their friend talking about their boss or whatever. There's lots of classic scenes in movies where you see that type of thing happening. So undoing or editing a text message is now a thing. Now you can do that with email. That normally only works internally to actually record it, make it disappear. Mm. Externally, it just says to someone, so-and-so would like to recall this message, which then makes you want to read it even more. Yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what did they get wrong? What weren't they meant to be sharing with me? So what a great way. I've actually thought about doing an email marketing campaign where it just goes out with, so-and-so would like to recall this message, and then everyone is guaranteed <laughs> to read it. <laughs> the curiosity uh, side would get to them. So yeah, they'll have texts that are edible and unsendable in your messages. So it'll only be a time frame of maybe 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. So it won't be forever. It won't be a text message from three years ago that you can then undo and go, oh, I never said that. What mm. do you mean? Show me the proof of where that is. And then you look on your phone and you can't find it. It'll only be a certain time frame, which kind of makes sense. The other one is that we've become familiar with some of the buy now, pay later services that are out there. It used to be called credit cards back in my young day, <laughs> but, but now Afterpay and Zip and all those different ones that are available out there. Apple's probably putting a few noses out of joint in other companies at the moment. So one of the things they have done with Apple Pay on the phone is getting to the point where you can use your phone at, say, you've got a small stall at a market, you can use your phone to take credit card payments, just like, say, a Square Reader. So suddenly all those people that needed to buy a Square Reader didn't need to buy that or don't need to buy it in the future, they'll be able to use a phone. So we mentioned that briefly in a previous episode, but now they're also incorporating into that whole concept a pay later feature. So you could just sit there at our markets and say, come along and buy my product. I've just got my iPhone sitting here. Using your iPhone, you can pay me and also not pay me immediately. Well, they'll get the money immediately, but not you don't have to pay for it immediately. So you can spread that purchase over the next three or four months or whatever the time frame might be. So all those various companies that are doing the buy now, pay later, Apple's a pretty big competitor. Yeah. So when they come along, especially when it's built into the phone, that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, so the other th- part I thought was interesting is CarPlay in terms of how integrated that will get into your car. So at the moment, you can plug your phone in. You've got a bit of an, an indication on your dash about a iPhone-like screen and use that it's going to get to the stage where it's going to be more integrated. So more of that phone will be more, across more of your dash. So it may not just be a little center console. It may be across the dash that sits right in front of you. It may want to make your whole dash in the car look just like an iPhone because wow. that's what Apple wants you to do. They want you to be fully integrated, immersed in their whole iOS. So that's going to be a little bit better, that whole integration. And then, again, the next thing that I've talked about often is how many health tracking features that we get in our devices. So Watch OS 9 has got new health tracking features. So for example, new running metrics, atrial fibrillation tracking, medication reminders. I thought that was a great one. So if you've got a certain medication you've got to take, you go, right, every day at 10 a.m. I want to take this medication. And in the reminders that pop up on your phone, messages, Facebook, all the rest of it, there'll be pop-ups to say, hey, you haven't taken your medication, so make sure you go and do it. And then you indicate, yes, I've taken that medication, so you've got some way of tracking it. So I'd like to know more about the atrial fibrillation one as well, because as a sufferer, one in five, I think it's 20% of the population is walking around with atrial fibrillation, don't even realise it. And so you can actually do things at the moment with your Apple Watch like an ECG, so that's pretty impressive mm. for a little watch to do that. Yeah. Again, as we say, with any time we talk about health Use this as an indicator. Don't use this as your only source. Go and see a doctor if you think there's a problem. But atrial fibrillation, if you can track that a little bit and just track some indication that something's wrong there, then yeah, exactly right. Someone can go along and get some early treatment or early diagnosis before they find out about it when it's all too late. Mm. So a whole range of things happening there. We'll see more released. 
what normally happens at WWDC is that Apple says a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it they haven't even got ready to go and they want to just get a bit of a market reaction out of it and then they'll make sure they work on those things to be ready by the time September comes along and their new phone gets launched and it's suddenly got all these wonderful new features that are there. So anyway, interesting to see. There's a whole bunch of other stuff as well, but you can go and look up some of those if you want to. But they're the things that stuck out for me in terms of some of those things. And probably the other one is just some of the notifications you get on your lock screen, more customization of that. So if you want certain things to pop up and certain other things not to pop up when your phone's locked, you can change that and be a little bit more flexible with that. So bottom line is we've got all these new things happening, lots of innovations. Android will respond with anything they see as a good feature. Undoing your text messages, not available on Android at this stage. Maybe they'll respond to it. Who knows? But it's just all these little iterations of better technology. Yeah. So the heads back at uh, the innovations office, um, they're actually they're actually working hard and earning their money then. At the moment. And it's probably harder and harder to earn your money because there's so many things that we've already got. I'm not saying we should close down the patents office, but there are so many things we've already got. Gee, it's, it's harder and harder to come up with new innovations, isn't it? For sure. For sure. And so the curtain falls on another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. It's time for us to head backstage to the dressing room and remove all this grease paint, which is a bit ridiculous considering there are no visuals at all for this podcast. And grease paint is well, so, so vaudevillian, isn't it? Nice work again today, Matt. Yeah, thank you very much. And it is still important to be in the mood. So I think it's reasonable we put paint on our faces <laughs> and get dressed, and get dressed up, up like we do. So sure. what are you saying? <laughs> well, look, I just want to say I really like the idea of 3D printing body bits and I can see it becoming some big business in the future. That's all for today, folks. I'm James Eddy and I'm off to go and see what my dogs have done to my new backyard in the last hour. We'll see you for more Tech Talk next week.